How many of you are brave enough to admit that you are tactical planners? That you plan everything. You love to plan out your lives. And so you live and die by the calendar. If that's you, then you're a lot like my mom. Growing up, my mom every year would buy one of these calendars because it was long before smart devices that had options for our computer and our phone tethered together. She would buy a a big calendar like this, and she had distilled every one of her six children down to a colored Sharpie. I was blue, my brother Ryan was red, my sister Christian was green, and together each year my mom would sit down with my dad and they would print off the calendar for our school year, and they would look at how many PTO days my dad had accrued that year, they would consider all the vacations, they would look at financial goals for the year, where they wanted to go, what they wanted to do, what they were going to force us to do. And then they would put it down on this calendar. And the master calendar, my parents had a color. And my mom was religious about every day going up to the calendar and crossing off the day before and looking at everything that we had coming up as a family together that day. Planning is a great thing. I do this every year with my own family. We sit down and we formulate goals and we plan out goals in five specific areas. What we call the five F's. Faith, family, finances, We talk about fitness and future. And we plan out these things every year. And we look at our calendar and say, how does all this tie together? And it's important. I grew up with the understanding that those who fail to plan might as well plan to fail with a high value on preparation and readiness. And my mom's a very linear thinker, probably like most of you, where she looks at the end goal. She looks at December 31st. And then she works succinctly backwards in a, in, a, in a form and fashion that makes sense to her from where we're starting today. Me, I'm more like Christmas vacation. I know where I want to end up, but I'm going to take a, a several different detours. And we're going to get out of the Grand Canyon. We're going to take a picture. All right, let's go. And we're going to keep, we're going to get where we need to go. We're just going to stop a lot along the way for bathroom breaks and to get more Reese's Pieces and things like that that are important on the journey. There's nothing wrong with planning our lives. There's nothing wrong with planning our future. I think it's a part of being responsible, good stewards of what God has given us. But here's something that God has been convicting of in me lately. And I just want to go on record up front and let you know that today, today, maybe more than most, I'm going to say a lot of hard things. Some things that are going to be pretty difficult and challenging to hear, at least for me. I hear often as a pastor, people will say, well, pastor, you know you don't have to preach at me every Sunday. I know I'm sitting there, but stop reading my email. And really what this is, is I'm reading my own email, a dialogue between God and me, to you. I'm just inviting you into the discussion. So here's my question for us to consider today. Is there something wrong with the, the approach that we have where we plan out our year based on our desires, what we hope for financially, what we hope for physically, what we hope for relationally, what we hope for religiously, what we hope for in our businesses, and what we hope for in our retirements. 
We plan out our lives. And if you're anything like me, this was the conviction this week. I work really intentionally and very hard on planning out my life so that I can be prepared. The problem is that I find that all too often I'll plan my life and then after I'm done planning my life based on my desires, the way that I want it to go, I will come on the back end and I'll invite God to bless my plans. I'll say, Lord, these are the things that I want to do with my life. And I just, you need to bless it now, God. I need you. It's the proverbial, God, bless my life. Bless my plans. Bless my future. And the Lord seemingly grabbed me between the the head. He grabbed my ears and, and just looked at me this week and said, Andrew, you need to invite me on the front end and build your plans around my purpose for your life. Stop asking me to bless your best laid plans based on your desires. Seek first the kingdom of God and add to it everything based on where I'm leading you. Because anything less is called idolatry. I was convicted this week that I live a life of idolatry all too often. And it's not even on purpose. The enemy has used tactics of the world to be prepared to lead me in the form of idolatry. I think planning is a great thing. I teach my kids to plan and prepare. But more than teaching them to plan and prepare, I need to teach them to submit to God and build their lives out of submission and obedience to the word, will, and way of God. Let me invite you up front to grab your Bibles as we're going to look at how we submit today. Today is week nine of our stronger series where we're learning to grow in our faith. And I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Philippians. Turn to the book of Philippians. It's going to be seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to raise your hand. And one of our ushers is going to be glad to bring you a Bible. These leather-bound Bibles are our gift to you. We want you to keep them, and we want you to bring them every week. It's an opportunity for you not only to follow along, but for you to circle things and highlight things and take down notes and write down questions and use the Word of God as a resource, as a tool to align your life with God's Word, will, and His way. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. It's about seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. As you're turning there, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here. I also want to welcome our online community. We recognize that God has given us a platform much bigger than ourselves here, and so thank you for those of you who are faithfully involved every week. If you get the chance to come and check out what God's doing here at our Blair campus, we would love to invite you to do that as well. Nine weeks ago, we started this series, and we, we, it was predicated on the idea that this year we want to grow. We want to grow in our knowledge, and we want to grow in our understanding, and we want to grow in our faith. All of the things that Alex and I talked about with Right Now Media. So in order for us to grow stronger in our, in our faith, we wanted to talk about some spiritual disciplines that we can add to our lives that will help us grow in knowledge, in understanding, and in practice We started week one with the spiritual discipline of study or studying God's word. And I said that everything we do in this series will be predicated on the importance of studying and knowing God's word. Week two, we looked at the spiritual discipline of prayer, specifically the Lord's prayer. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. And he says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we talked about prayer, not as a religious practice, but as a lifestyle. The third week of this series, we looked at meditation, and unlike Eastern religion and mysticism that says you need to clear your mind, Christianity and faith in God actually says we are called to fill our minds, to meditate on the laws and the precepts of God. 
The fourth week, we looked at solitude, and we determined in Psalm 46.10 that we're called to be still and know that he is God, regardless of our circumstances or our surroundings, that, that being still or solitude isn't about a place, but it's a position of the head and the heart. After solitude, week five, Pastor Richard taught us the spiritual discipline of confession, what it means to confess to one another, what it means to confess to God, and how to manage confession as a spiritual discipline. Week six, Kevin Barnhill, one of our elders, taught on the spiritual discipline of service, the act or action of serving others so that we can grow in our faith by the fruit that we exhibit. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Iki Soma, senior pastor of City of Refuge Church in Houston, Texas, who is also our step-up conference, men's conference speaker, did an amazing job teaching us on the spiritual discipline of secrecy, and specifically in three areas, in prayer, in fasting, and in giving. And he says, whatever you give, whenever you fast, whenever you pray, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And it's all about motives. It was all about our intentions. Then last week, we looked at simplicity. And I said that in this series, all the spiritual disciplines that we're going to examine are about adding an element to our lives that will help us grow in our faith, with the exception of simplicity. That simplicity was actually addition by subtraction. By removing distractions, by removing clutter in our lives, it actually helps us grow stronger in our faith. And there's been a lot of questions about how we can practically address this simplistic lifestyle in our lives. We, we talked about how it's not poverty, but simplicity, they're different. And so I'm actually doing some background behind the scenes work on simplicity. And I plan to share that with you hopefully this week or, or, or the next two weeks about ways that we can apply simplicity to our lives so that we can grow stronger in our faith. And today, church, today we are looking at the spiritual discipline of submission. I want to share with you two quotes, two thoughts from Richard Foster, who authored the book, The Celebration of the Disciplines. The Celebration. Because all too often, we can look at spiritual disciplines as a form of routine and repetition and as just an act, something we do to grow stronger, that we do this many reps, this many sets, that we're going to grow stronger. But it's much more than that. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of the Disciplines, says these two things. First, he says, in spiritual disciplines, our aim is freedom, not the discipline. The moment we make the discipline our central focus, we turn it into law and lose the corresponding freedom. The spiritual discipline is not the end in and of itself. It's the process with the end being centrality, Christ being our focus. And then he shares this thought as well. Let us forever center on Christ and view the spiritual discipline as a way, not the way, but a way of drawing us closer to the very heart of God. Because we know that salvation comes from grace alone, not by works so that none of us can boast, but we are also called to work out our salvation with fear of God, with awe and trembling. And so there is responsibility on our part to do practices, putting spiritual disciplines in place so that we grow stronger. And today, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, We're going to discover several things, but in the end, I want to kind of give this to you up front, and we're going to come full circle. In the end, I want to, I want to propose to you that we're going to learn that we are called to submit in four ways, in four areas of our lives. We are called to submit to one another. We are called to submit to God. We are called to submit to our created purpose, and we are called to submit to the very word of God. We're called to submit to others, to God, to our created purpose, and to the word of God. 
As we get there, I want to set the stage up front to let you know that the spiritual discipline of submission is an intentional act of setting aside our desires in place of the will of God as an act of worship. The spiritual discipline of submission is an intentional act of setting aside our desires, our best laid plans in favor of God's will in our lives as a spiritual act of worship. So with your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2, let's open with a word of prayer and jump in. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our church. Thank you for this platform that you are uh, entrusting me with this morning to share from your word. And I pray that as we lift your name up, that you would draw all of us unto yourself. I pray this morning for the ability and the strength to preach with authenticity and with integrity. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, that they would be acceptable to you. Oh, Father, in your name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison, and not just prison. He's actually chained, he's bound, he's handcuffed to a Roman guard at all times. And he writes this letter to the early church in Philippi that are learning as they grow in their faith. They haven't arrived These are followers of the way, and the reason they're called followers of the way is because Christianity as a term of identity has yet to be introduced. What they do know is that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who follows me, I'm the way, I'm I'm the one, you need to come follow me. And so they call themselves followers of the way. This is written about A.D. 61. So there's a lot of faith forming going on. And the apostle Paul recognizes that in the early church, they need spiritual disciplines. They need to learn to grow, not only as individuals, but you're going to see here in just a moment that he actually writes this letter to the church collective. He writes two different ways. He writes multiple times in, uh, in first person to an individual to say, you need to individually evaluate your heart and examine your life. But then he'll also write collectively to the church as a body. And this letter would have been read aloud. People would have come and they would have heard this in the form of worship, similar to what we're doing today, where Sunday through, Saturday, Sunday through Friday, uh, they were worshiping in homes and they were experiencing life together, which we're going to talk about next week. But on Saturday, they would come together under the instruction of the rabbi and they would have public reading of scripture and they would go through the celebration of spiritual hymns and songs and praises and they would go through an opportunity of an intentional worship time. So this letter that I'm going to read to you today would have been read aloud to the church collective with the intention of both individual examination as well as collective understanding. The first verse, the Apostle Paul is going to ask four rhetorical questions that deal with five different characteristics of the Christian attitude in the church. Let me say that again. The first verse, Philippians 2, 1, the Apostle Paul is going to ask four rhetorical questions dealing with five characteristics or DNA of the local church. And he asks this in the form of rhetoric or rhetorical question, assuming up front that before he suggests these things, that he already knows the outcome, that he has already arrived at the answer, that they are in fact doing these things. 
Pastor Iki Soma talked about this just a couple of weeks ago when talking about prayer and fasting and giving. And that it mentions seven times in short order when you fast, when you pray, when you give. It doesn't suggest if you give, if it's convenient for you, if you have the time. Instead, those who are in Christ are considered new creations. They are regenerated. They are a new body, a new being. And as a byproduct of this new life in Christ, these are the standards with which we are called to live our lives. So therefore, it is supposed that we are doing these things. When the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2.1, he is supposing that these things are already taking place. So what are these things? Let's check it out. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Here are the four rhetorical questions, the five characteristics of the body of believers, the local church, is that we are to encourage one another because we belong to Christ. That we are to comfort one another in light of the agape love that we get undeservedly and for eternity because of Jesus. That we are to fellowship together in the spirit of Christ where that creates unity of the body and that our hearts are to be t- tender, in other, so- in other words, soft and, 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 and malleable, pliable, ready to be moved and compassionate, demonstrating compassion for others. These are the five characteristics that the Apostle Paul draws out within the local church that says, I'm assuming that you guys are already doing these things. I'm assuming that you encourage one another because you belong to Christ. I'm assuming that you're going to comfort one another because you've been comforted by the agape love. I'm assuming that you're going to have fellowship together in the spirit of the Lord. I'm assuming that your hearts are going to be tender and pliable. And I'm assuming that you are going to demonstrate compassion to others. Assuming then that these are the five characteristics of the church, the Apostle Paul is going to make a plea. This statement that we're about to read, it should read, it says in, in the New Living Translation, the word is then, but it should say either therefore or because of, because you're a part of the body of believers, because you're a part of the church, because you are tender-hearted and compassionate, because you are comforting others in the agape kind of love that comes from Jesus, because of that, look at what he tells us. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Working together would be a great sentence uh, to circle or part of the sentence to circle because I would argue that the greatest adversary against submission within the church is working together. We're going to learn here in just a moment about considering others better than ourselves and what that looks like. Here's what I want us to know, and I talked about this with some of our staff. As much as I don't want to address what I am about to address, I have no other option but to address what I have to address because it's straight from Sola Scriptura, straight from the Word of God. What the Apostle Paul is writing about here is church splits. He's addressing church splits. He's addressing the body of believers. And he's saying... That as you demonstrate these five characteristics of every believer in the collective body, the ecclesia, or the gathering of believers, as you come together, he says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly. The word wholeheartedly there represents three different things. Mind, will, and emotion. Mind, 
will, and emotion. He's not suggesting that we, that we submit our, 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 our opinions or our thoughts or that we, that we somehow no longer have our own ideas. Instead, what he's saying, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is he's saying, in light of the fact that when you come into Christ, you're a new creation, each one of you, when you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, has been gifted by the Spirit of God according to his desire and his will, a unique spiritual gift. And these spiritual gifts individually come together collectively like the human body. They work where we have some ears, some eyes, some arms, some feet. They come together collectively. They have different responsibilities, but with the same common goal, and that is a healthy life. In the church, that is my goal for us, that we experience a healthy, life-giving, life-breathing church. And in order to do that, we have to come together wholeheartedly, mind, will, and emotion. And we have to agree to keep the main thing the main thing. We've got to keep centrality of Christ the main thing. We've got to recognize that at the foot of the cross, and by cross I mean at the, the, the act of Jesus on the cross, that all things are equal, that it's a level playing field. That is the centrality of Christ is what we can agree on. We don't have to agree on what, what, uh, what the color of the carpet is for us to, to be the church. We don't have to agree on what time the service starts. We offer three services for your convenience. We don't have to agree even on whether you think Pastor Andrew should shave his head or let his hair grow out and pretend that he's not bald and try to cover up the bald spots because he's incredibly bald. I'm not asking us to agree. Uh, What I am suggesting is that we are called collectively to focus on the centrality of Christ in our lives and exhibit five characteristics of a growing healthy church. And it all requires submission. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Loving one another, and here it is, That loving word is the same word that Paul uses when he says, is there any comfort from his love? It's the same word. It's agape. It's an unending love that is without merit, that's not deserved, but it's given freely and generously for all of eternity. And working together with one mind and purpose. Next week, I am so excited for next week's spiritual discipline. I'm so excited for next week's sermon. I am talking about the spiritual discipline of community. I'm talking about the spiritual discipline of being the church. That the church isn't me and it's not this building and it's not the motions that we go through on Sunday. That it is so much bigger and so much more important than that. But what we do here matters. What we do here is important. And when we come together, we have to agree wholeheartedly with the centrality of Christ. We have to work hard to get along loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. When we don't work together with one mind and one purpose, when we superimpose our own will and our own desires and our own expectations on others, it leads to division and division in the church leads to devastation in the community division in the church leads to devastation in the community I'll tell you what don't take my word for it let's look at what the apostle Paul says in verse 3 he says don't be selfish the opposite of submission is selfishness don't try to impress others be humble submission begins and ends with humility Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. This is so detrimental. We look at it, and and most of us, if not all of us, collectively would agree that this is a foreign concept. Yet if we would learn to consider others better than ourselves, if we, and, and it's so simple, it, it creeps up in some of the, in some of the most uh, innocent ways. For example, active listening is an art form that is all too gone for most people. 
We are so intent on making our case and setting our point in place that while the individual that we're trying to talk to is speaking, we are already composing in our minds our rebuttal, our next sentence, which will be the ultimate statement for why we believe what we believe and why they should bend to our will. If we're honest, when we go about planning our lives, when we go about decorating the calendar of our lives with our finances, with our friendships, in our, in our, in our future, with our faith, all of it, when we go through decorating, we then spend a majority of our energy, if you really think about it, we then spend a majority of our energy and efforts trying to bend everybody else's will to our way, including God. When we invite God on the back end of our planning, instead of submitting to him on the front end, and we say, God, now bless this, what we're saying is, God, would you submit to my will? I'm superimposing on you what I want for my life. And when you do that, it causes division. Because when what you want is more important than the centrality and the commonality in Christ, it creates division, and division in the church leads to devastation in the community. I've never heard of a really good reason for a church split. Can I say something very blunt? I think church splits are stupid. I think church splits are sinful. I think church splits are a direct result and byproduct of selfish behaviors and motives, not submission to God and considering others better than yourself. Why do I think that? Because God said so. If you look at even marriages, most arguments, and I would argue all arguments, boil down to unmet expectations from superimposed desires that were never clearly communicated. Can we say that again? Husbands, listen up. Wise, you're not exempt from this. Stop elbowing your man. <laughs> if not all, almost every argument in your marriage boils down to unmet expectations that you superimposed on your spouse without clearly communicating your desire. And that's why we walk around life so disappointed. We're disappointed all the time. We're disappointed in the stock market. We're disappointed in our church. We're disappointed in our pastor. We're disappointed in the people around us. We're disappointed in our finances. We're we're disappointed. Why? Because we have unmet expectations. But here's the deal. When you consider that all the things that we get upset about, you can't take with you to eternity anyway, it changes your focus. We should walk around upset about the people who are dying and going to hell because they don't know Jesus. What happens when that becomes our central focus? Knowing God fully and making God fully known. What are you so bent out of shape about your 401k for? You can't take it with you. What are you so bent out of shape about the dent in your vehicle? Stop parking so close to the front. Get out, park a little further, walk a little bit more and burn some extra calories. Don't get all bent out of shape about somebody who put a door ding in your vehicle. It's a vehicle. And if it's not a Ford, it's hardly that. (laughs) I had one of our staff members yesterday texted me last night about the message and 
he said something to me and he said, I'm looking forward to the message. And I said, I might even get you saved. And he said, if by salvation, you mean I'm going to drive a Ford, that's not going to happen. And, and he said, uh, he, I said, uh, he, he talked about purgatory and, and I said, yeah, purgatory is owning a Chevy. And he said, if purgatory is owning a Chevy, then hell is where you drive a Ford. <laughs> I got nothing. Guys, the Apostle Paul calls out to the church. He says, don't be selfish. Be submissive. When you're submissive, you encourage others who belong to Christ. When you're submissive, you comfort those based on the love of God. When you're submissive, you experience fellowship together in the spirit of God. When you're submissive, your hearts are tender and your hearts are compassionate. When you're submissive, you work to agree wholeheartedly, mind, spirit, and body and will with each other. When you're submissive, you work hard to love one another. And when you're, when you're submissive, you work together with one mind and purpose. The problem is we're selfish and we try to impress others. We're not humble. Instead, we're the opposite. We're selfish and we, we, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But the Apostle Paul says, think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. The word lookout is where we get the military term scouting. Today, we have drones that we send up into the air. We can send them out several hundred miles and they are radio controlled and these drones will go out and they will scout an area looking very intentionally for others. And that is the same terminology that is used here that we are called to scout out or look out for the best interests of others and not just to complain about them. One of the biggest complaints that I hear all the time from baby boomers in my generation is about the millennials. You know what our problem with the millennials is? It's not that they're entitled and lazy and all that they can't even carry a conversation without a phone in front of them. It's that they don't do things the way we, we did them. And the way we did them worked for us. And maybe we have something to learn from them. And maybe we have something to offer them without superimposing it on them that they could learn from us by how we live our lives instead of by how we gripe about how lazy and entitled they are. I mean, I'm just just, just a thought. He says, he says, don't look out only for your own interests, but scout out, take an interest in others too. Then I love this ultimate trump card. I love this ultimate trump card. This is when your kids come to you and say, why? And you say, because I'm your parent. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that says, well, why do I have to consider others better than myself? Why do I have to agree wholeheartedly? Why does the centrality of Christ have to be the main thing? And the Apostle Paul says, I'm glad you asked because Jesus Christ said so. And not only did Jesus say so, he demonstrated it with how he lived his life. What we're about to read beginning in verse 6 is what is known as Christ's hymn. This is where collectively as we come together as a church, when this was read in the early church, it would have been accompanied by a musical instrument and it would have been sung as an act of worship. It was not just theology and doctrine that was being taught, but they were collectively agreeing on it and celebrating together what they were going to read. So let's work through Christ's hymn together and let's imagine that we're worshiping God because of these things. Check this out. There is so much in this that I want to unpack, but we don't have all the time for today. Verse 6 is the introduction 
doctrine of the Trinity. If ever anyone asks you, arguably, to demonstrate or define or explain where the Trinity exists in Scripture, look no further than Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, where we are introduced to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three individual, yet all three one and the same. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Though he, Jesus, was God, Yahweh, creator God, He, Jesus, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He set aside his own desires for the will of God. There is a language that we're going to learn about here, which is the word poured out. It's the idea of being poured out as a drink offering. Here in verse 7, instead of thinking of equality with God as something to cling to, instead, Jesus gave up. There it is. That word gave up, or that term gave up, literally means to pour out, to pour out as a drink offering his divine privileges. And if you want a great example of where this takes place, it takes place in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, I would that you would take this cup from me. I am about to die. I am about to lose my life so that the world may gain theirs. And he says, Father, if you will, I wish you, I wish you would take this cup from me. That, that word cup is the idea that his life is going to be poured out as a drink offering. Here it is again. He says instead he gave up or he poured out his divine privileges when Jesus says, yet not my will but yours be done. He doesn't superimpose his will on God. He obeys and submits to God's will. And it says that he took Jesus now, took the humble position of a slave. He took it. It wasn't superimposed upon him. He accepted it. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And the Apostle Paul uses a tremendous word picture here of one of Jesus' last acts or miracles. And I would tell you it's a relational miracle because Jesus at the Last Supper is with his disciples. And as he's with his disciples about to eat, he goes and he takes off his outer garment. Jesus then robes himself with a cloth and he goes and he grabs a basin and a pitcher of water. He then dumps the water into the basin and he goes from one disciple to to the next disciple, to the next disciple, including the disciple that Jesus knew was going to betray him, that Jesus knew was going to defame him, that Jesus knew was going to lie about him, that Jesus knew he was going to sell him out for some silver coins. And Jesus washes their feet one after the other. And the apostle Peter says, Jesus, you cannot wash my feet in his zealous actions. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part in me. In other words, if I don't get to serve you, if I don't get to submit to you, you can't be a part of me. And the apostle Peter does what I would so readily do. And he says, all right, Jesus, then not just my feet, but give me a bath. Bring it on, big guy. Let me have all of it. And Jesus says, Peter, you idiot. You don't get it. I mean, he didn't say that. That's my version. Because that's how I envision he would say to me, Andrew, you idiot. Just listen to me. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to serve. I came to be the greatest servant. And then Jesus says, as I am doing for you, as I am willfully coming under submission as a slave, do unto others. And what he does there is very curious. Jesus doesn't just take on the form of any slave. Even in slavery, there was a pecking order. Even in slavery, there was a totem pole of social acceptance of who was the greatest slave to who was the lowliest of slaves. 
the individual that was lowest on the totem pole or pecking order in the slave system was the individual that would have to stand at the ready at the door. And when a visitor's guest would enter from outside where they had been sweating from the hot sun and collecting dust from the, from the, from the, from the, from the rocky ground, the rocky soil, the dirty soil, their feet then would come in, they would be crusty, full of mud and sweat and bacteria and disgust and whatever comes with that culture, they would have to take their outer garment off, wrap a robe around themselves, pour a pitcher into a basin, and literally scrub clean the feet of every guest that came into that home. Jesus didn't just run to the kitchen to bring out the dinner bread. He wasn't just there to refresh their beverages. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. I submit myself not only to God, I submit myself not only to God's ways, but Jesus literally says by word and deed, I came to submit myself to you in the form of slavery. If Jesus Lord of all creation. In the Old Testament, the word is Yahweh, creator God. And in the New Testament, which we're going to learn about here in just a moment, the same word, different name, draws same meaning. It's the creator God. If Jesus, creator God, came to seek and save the lost so that he could serve us by submitting to us, how much more, how much more, church, should we in humility consider others better than ourselves, set aside our own desires, stop superimposing everything we want on the world around us, including God, and start serving. We've got to start submitting all of us and stop with the attitude of entitlement that we somehow need to be served. The apostle Paul says he humbled himself. He was born a human, verse 8. When he appeared in human form, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Church, I wasn't going to touch this either, but I don't have a choice. I would encourage you to do yourself a favor. Sandwich between uh, the, uh, the word cross, it says, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Would you circle that word A, please? That description? So many of us get so worked up for all the wrong reasons even in our religion because we superimpose what's important to us on everyone around us and the cross is one of those issues where people will look at it and say we have to celebrate the cross the problem with celebrating the cross is nowhere in the entire Bible is the cross celebrated nowhere in the entire Bible is there even mention of a specific cross? There was no ornate cross. It was just another cross. It was just a cross. Nowhere in scripture are we called. To, we don't even see people recognizing the cross as a religious symbol until the second century. We're getting worked up over the wrong thing, church. Jesus, when you think about it in context, it would be no different than us wearing uh, an electric chair around our neck today or celebrating uh, a noose around uh, the, the, the church or celebrating an, uh, you know, euthanization, a table with some, some IV bags that have loaded with different chemicals that would take someone's life. All the cross was was a means of torture, of capital punishment, and it was reserved for those who were most egregious in their, in their convictions. 
they could, Jesus could have died any number of ways. The point of the cross is to say that not only did he die, but he died the most egregious death that was reserved for the most wicked of individuals, taking on the sin of the world. That is the death that was reserved for you and for me because of how egregious our sin is against God. It's not about the cross. It's not even just, it is about the act of the cross where Jesus came and gave once and for all a final blood atonement, the final sacrifice, so that you and I no longer had to be good enough because God is enough. And what we celebrate in church, what the Bible teaches us to celebrate is not a cross, it teaches us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That three days after Jesus died on a cross, Jesus was buried in a tomb, the tombstone was rolled away, the guards went into the tomb, Mary went into the tomb, the disciples went into the tomb, Jesus was gone, all that was left were his burial cloths, and he conquered death so that you and I can have life. And so all I'm saying is, let's not superimpose our own religiosity on the church and agree that we can, the centrality of Christ is our main focus. The centrality of Christ is our main focus. Go back to the tabernacle where, where, where God gave Moses and the Levites and the priests clear-cut, dry instructions on how high and how wide and how long and how deep and the kind of materials that the, the tabernacle was supposed to be used and where the tent of meeting was supposed to be and what it was supposed to look like, where the Ark of the Covenant was to be kept. Nowhere in all of that instruction do you see anything where God says anything about a cross. If we're going to get upset, let's get upset about people dying and going to hell. Not about a religious symbol that we superimposed about second century. So that we could remember. I don't need a cross to remember what Jesus did for me. All I have to do is look in the mirror and realize what he saved. That's in there, by the way. He said he humbled himself in obedience. Submission requires obedience to God. And died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, in light of what God did... God elevated him to the place of the highest honor, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he gave him, Jesus, the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. And at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, not only here, but on heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue at the name of Jesus would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. In the end, everything will submit. But being the gracious God that he is, he gives us our own volition and our free will to choose to submit to God out of love and reverence and obedience this side of heaven. What that means is that in the end, regardless of what you believe or how you practice right now, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on heaven, on earth, and under earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming. The sheep and the goats will be separated, but in the end, the central theme, the commonality is the centrality of Christ where everybody will declare that he is God. But we serve such a gracious God. He gives us the ability to submit all things to him so that we can experience the fullness of his love, not the brevity of our desires. In this passage of scripture, we're called to submit four ways. The first is that We're called to submit to to one another. I mentioned earlier the four character or the five characteristics in the four rhetorical questions, but I want to share with you what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 5.21, he says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
When you're submitting to another person, it's not that you're waving your white flag saying you're just better than me or your idea is better than mine or you're a better person than me. When you submit one to another, we are submitting as an act of worship out of reverence for Jesus. Husband, when you submit to your wife, that is an act of worship. Wife, when you submit to your husband, that is an act of worship. Neighbor, when you submit to the person sitting in front of you, behind you, next to you, around you, that is an act of worship because you are revering God. Submission is an act of obedience which Jesus demonstrated in how he served us. The second way we're called to submit is we're called to submit to God. And you don't have to look any further than Jesus teaching on prayer. Matthew 6.10 Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We are called to submit our best laid plans and desires to God on the front end and not solely ask him to bless our desires on the back end. We are called to submit to God in everything. This is one of those things that's really weird. It's hard. It's one of those things we don't even, we take it for granted. Guys, I'm trying to learn this discipline of submission, especially in the area of my desires for God's will. And I'm learning that I have to do it even in the simple things. Part of how I'm training myself is like training Caden. When my, when my son was a little boy, I would dump Cheerios in the toilet to teach him how to pee on the Cheerios, so not on the seat or the walls, because it was a lot easier. And, and, and I, I'm sorry, I hope that's okay I talk about that, because I am. It's real life. But I taught him, it was in the simple things. So now at 14, I'm assuming he's, he's a pretty good aim. And so, uh, but, but I did that in, in the simple things. And with repetition over time, in my own life, learning to submit to God's will instead of my desires, I literally prayed last night, Lord, what do you want me to wear when I preach tomorrow? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Doesn't that sound silly? And yet the Lord convicted me that it wasn't about what I wore, but the fact that I asked him in everything. You see, I didn't want to wear something that was, that was too much, that it would look like I was trying to show off, and I didn't want to wear something too casual that would be a distraction for others. And so I just said, Lord, what do you want me to wear? And I'm learning now to pray, even in the smallest of things. God, what is your desire? What is your will right here? So that I learn, even in the small things, to submit my desires for God's will. The third way that we're called to submit is we're called to submit to our created purpose. Check out Romans 12.1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. This is your created purpose, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Our created purpose is to know God fully and to make God fully known. And what we can do is we can submit the reason why we exist. You don't exist to make money. You don't exist to make your spouse happy. Your spouse does not exist to make you happy. You do not exist to feel comfortable in this world. You're not called to feel comfortable. You're called to recognize that you're a foreign alien. You're not even a resident. This should feel uncomfortable because this is not our home. You are called to submit to your created purpose, which is to know God fully and to make God fully known. And it is to that end that we should live and move and have our being. That should be what inspires us and drives us in every area of our lives. And finally, we are called to submit to God's word. James 4, 7 says, so humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In order to humble yourself before God and to know what he desires of you, from you, and for you, you have got to recognize and rely on the word of God. You have got to know the word of God. You've got to know the word of God. There's an answer for everything you're facing in the word of God. You want to know how to live the fully surrendered life? 
You got to know the word of God. I told you from week one, everything we talk about is going to be predicated on the study of God's word. So here's, here's what I'm challenged with. Here's what I'm asking myself. Here's what the Lord has laid on my heart. And I want to ask you because I feel it's an act of obedience that God is calling me to. And the question is this. What area of your life do you need to fully submit to God today? What area? I mean, I just heard somebody say, and I totally agree that all of it, you're right. We absolutely need to fundamentally submit our entire lives to God. But I, I think the Lord is speaking to my heart even more intensely to say, Andrew, you submitted to me in this area, in this area, in this area, but, but I still don't have all of you. What area do you need to submit to God this morning? What area is God calling you to submit so that you can grow in your faith, so that you can grow in your knowledge? Do you need to submit to others in humility, considering them better than yourself? Do you need to submit to, 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 to your created purpose? Do you need to submit to, to God? Do you need to submit to his word? What area? Your finances. Church, I don't know how else to say it. We are growing as a church uh, we have had another 20 people come to faith already this year. It's tremendous what God is doing. We've given away almost 600 Bibles. It's tremendous what God is doing. Yet, I just want to encourage you, as the church grows, the average, we have on average a week between 600 and 800 people who attend our church. Between 600 and 800. About 500 adults on average with about 130 kids and then workers throughout the building. And that doesn't include Wednesday night where there's over 100 youth every week and over 100 kids involved in Iwana. We're somewhere between six and 800 people. Every week, we only average 61 people who give anything to the church. That is 10%. 10% of anybody in the church is giving to the entire church. What that tells me, if I'm using numbers as just a metric, is that most of us haven't yet submitted our finances to God. And I know that's not comfortable to hear. As a pastor, it's even taboo to talk about. I don't know why. Jesus talked about money more than he did heaven and hell combined. If you have yet to fully submit your finances to God, you're literally being chained and bound by finances. And the Bible says that man cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and money. Surrender it today. How about, how about your desire to always be right? Surrender it. You don't always have to be right. Even when you're right, you're wrong when you always think you're right. Surrender it today. Learn to listen better. Learn to love more intentionally. Where do you need to surrender today? Let me invite you to stand to your feet, church. Every one of you, please stand with me to your feet. I have a very intentional invitation that I want to make to you this morning. I need you to pay close attention. Do not allow distractions to creep in. What I am about to share with you is the most important thing that you will ever hear in your life, and that is simply the gospel. God loves the world so much that he gave us his son, born in the form of a virgin Mary, that he came and lived among us for over 30 years, lived a spotless, blameless life, and he took on death, even death on a cross, in our place where we, for all of our burdens of sin, were separated from God because God can have no part with sin. Jesus stepped in our stead and he said, I will take on the sin of the world, all sin for all time, for all people, and I will take that, I will bear that burden. And Jesus was put to death on that cross 
his last words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I submit my soul. Even in his last breath, Jesus was submitting. He was submitting to God and he was submitting for you and for me. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into your hands I submit my soul. And he took his last breath. He was buried and three days later conquered death as prophets before would foretell of. He would fulfill prophecy, conquering death that we might have eternal life. And there is a guaranteed promise that Jesus is coming again. And upon his return, he will call all people unto himself that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven, on earth, and under earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will experience an eternity where there is no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more gnashing of teeth, no more brokenness, no more division that leads to devastation, that Jesus will be our all and all. And we will know no more pain and suffering. We will know nothing but the glory of God. And we will celebrate a life of worship singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and forever will be and will be reunited with others who have called upon the name of the Lord for all eternity. That is our created purpose to understand and accept that. And so here's what my invitation for you this morning is. If you have never called upon the name of the Lord, if you've known religion but you've never entered into a right relationship with Jesus where you fully submitted not just admitted listen there's a difference Alex there's a difference between admitting that there's a God and submitting your life to Jesus if you've been going through life just admitting that there's a God but you have never submitted your life to Jesus I declare to you this morning that today is your day of reckoning Today is your day where you no longer just admit that there's a God, but you submit to Jesus all that you are and all that you have. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, not because this is super spiritual, but because I want to eliminate distractions, even you who are watching online right now, I pray that you will examine your hearts. If you have never submitted your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, if you have never entered into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you have gone from one empty well after the next, from one cheap imitation after the next, trying to find fulfillment only to be left void of any sustenance in life. If today you want to know eternal security and salvation by way of submission to Jesus, you want to give all of yourself to Jesus, I want to invite you to be courageous by raising your hand so that I can pray with you. If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I invite you to raise your hand right now, right where you are. Praise God. Amen. I see that hand. 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 Praise God. I see that hand. I see that hand. Amen. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says that if you believe in your heart, that if you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. So I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer of agreement with me. I'm going to pray. And if you agree that this is, in fact, what you're submitting your life to, then at the end, I simply invite you to to make these words concrete in your heart. Make it a declaration by saying amen. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. I admit that I've gone from one cheap imitation and one empty well after the next, searching for significance. I recognize that for far too long I have admitted that there's a God, but I've not submitted to you as Lord in my life. 
And Father, today is my day. I choose to make you Lord of my life. I give my life to you, Lord. I give myself to you, Lord. All that I am and all that I have is yours. I give it to you, Father. Redeem me unto yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. And for the others, Lord, of us who have not fully surrendered our lives, where we're holding on tightly to something, money or relationships or possessions or uh, best laid plans, Father, I pray that you forgive us for not trusting you entirely and completely and that you would teach us to surrender fully and entirely. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I need you to know, church that it is hard sometimes to see from the stage because of the bright lights but I know like I know like I know that at the invitation of making Jesus Lord of your life there were no less than six people who raised their hands publicly that they are declaring Jesus Lord of their life today praise God This is why we exist, to be a community, to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. If you are one of the six that I know of for sure that raised your hand to make a decision, I want to know you. I want to celebrate with you. I want to pray with you. Would you please go to our Connection Center, write out these double doors at the end, find our staff that are there waiting to greet you with a gift. Let them know the decision that you made today and let's celebrate with you. Alex, let's celebrate out of here together in worship.